Brilliant. Okay, so Susan, um, stranger to Fitzroy, though no stranger to Belfast as a city, um, it's been a pleasure to get to know you over the past, I know, it must be about almost a year now, uh, in various meetings and stuff. Um, but so who is Susan Mansfield? Um, big question, big answer from you. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are in your journey. Um, okay, that is a big question, as you say. Um, so, um, Professionally, um, I'm a journalist um, specialising in the arts um, and I've been working at the Scotsman uh, daily newspaper in Scotland for about uh, 12 and a half years. Uh, I left there a year ago uh, to be freelance and uh, now write for a variety of different people in a variety of different ways. Um, and um, one of the things that I've been on a journey with, I suppose for nearly 10 years, is uh, the contemplative tradition of spirituality and uh, have been training and, um, and, and learning more about that really and it's a lifetime kind of learning process. But uh, one of the things that I've come across and, and have been involved in as part of that is leading um, things like uh, quiet days and, uh, and uh, moving that into walks and working with reflective walking. Um, and so that kind of is a bit of the preliminary to what has brought me to Belfast. Fantastic, that's great. So tell us a little bit more then about your involvement in the arts world. I know that you review quite a lot of stuff in the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, you were over in Venice, is that correct, earlier this year. Tell us a little bit about how you have found moving in that world and how your faith has impacted how you move in that world. Um, sure, I mean, um, so I've been... Um, I've been working and writing about the arts for, I suppose, about 20 years now, and in different ways. Um, I, I review um, art and theatre, um, and probably my main areas that I work in are, are visual art, uh, books and theatre. Um, in Edinburgh, you may have heard that we have this festival every summer where everything goes a little bit bananas, and um, the, in that period, I've tended to be working um, you know, it's at 24-7 pretty much, um, reviewing, um, you know, sometimes five or six things a day. Um, Do you ever get and, bored? Uh, very rarely, uh, <laughs> very rarely. I, I mean, I, I've seen stuff that's bad, certainly, that is true. But um, I, I've also seen, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that's, that's, that's been really great. And, and I think in terms of how it impacts, you know, it's, um, you know, some of the work that I've seen over the years, and I'll mention some of it um, in, later on, but has had a big impact in terms of the, the things that um, I write and the things that, that I've kind of been doing both kind of creatively um, in my own way and, and in terms of, of spirituality. So yeah. things feed in a yeah. lot to that, yeah. I suppose for, for me, I got a bit of an interest or insight into your life and work during the summer when I sort of saw that no day really necessarily goes as planned. Uh, we were walking around the city and the next minute you get a phone call, can you come to the BBC studios to do something for BBC Radio Scotland about the Rolf Harris case? And, you know, so that diversity yeah. must keep you busy, interested, excited. It's it a 24-7 yeah. job. 
it, it can be. It's a bit. Um, it's. It's. Um, it's. You're right. One. One doesn't know. Uh, you know what's going to turn up next. That was a surreal day. I was walking around Belfast, looking at possible locations for the the Passion Walk, uh, and then you know suddenly uh, get get a call saying we we need somebody to come on the radio and talk about Rolf Harris's artwork. This was just after he'd been uh, been uh, found guilty of uh, of the offences and. Um, so it was just it was very it was very very strange um but that that um yes it is it's continually um interesting and uh, and of course being now being freelance i tend to say yes to everybody that offers me work so that makes it interesting as well <laughs> it's always good to get paid isn't it susan <laughs> always good to get paid <laughs> so tell us you've been telling us a little bit about faith arts there tell us then this development and interest in contemplative prayer and spiritual direction, where, where did that come from? And can you think of a moment in particular where that sort of, you sort of thought, yeah, that's a direction I feel that I'm being called into? Or share a little bit about your experiences with that with us. Um, yeah, um, so I guess my own journey has been over, over, the, the, over the years, really, that um, I was, my earliest years were in a Presbyterian church. Um, I've uh, um, <laughs> I've been around the house. <laughs> I, spent, <laughs> I spent some time. Uh, I've also spent quite quite a bit of time in a Baptist church, um, and I'm now kind of loosely under the umbrella of the Scottish Episcopal uh, Church, uh, which uh, sister to the Church of Ireland. Um, well, at I, least you started well. <laughs> <laughs> didn't keep it up. I'm sorry about that. But um, but actually, that yeah, the, discovering. Um, Discovering the contemplative, um, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose it's it's hard to pinpoint a moment. Um, and it was, I think, I was I was aware that for me there were things I was looking for, mm. um, and uh, and and that there there were things that I struggled with about uh, sitting in a conventional church service, um, and that being my main point of sort of interaction with God and God's community, um, and. Wanting to um, wanting to uh, discover more, and and I think just gradually embarking on a journey where things are unveiled to you um, uh, in in um, in rather extraordinary ways um, and ways that you didn't expect. So yeah. it's been it's it's been a, a revelation. Great. It's 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 sort of just interesting to listen there in terms of you saying that there were things you were looking for, and I suppose in the arts and in film recently there seems to be this reoccurring theme of people setting out in journeys and looking for something that they maybe hadn't seen before. I'm thinking about, you know, the Rennie Zellweger uh, movie Wild, which is out about where she sets out on this journey across America walking, uh, hoping to walk herself back to the woman that her mother would want her to be, which sort of links us then into why you're here to talk about uh, the Passion Walk. Uh, tell us, where did that idea come from? And... Yeah, tell us where it came from, and then we'll explore a bit further. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that that word journey is is really important, and, and mm. I think part of for me about the the work that I've done in in, in contemplative prayer has been realizing that um, I'm on a journey, and that you know it, it's it's a process, and it doesn't matter if you're not there yet. You're not necessarily failing. You've just moved on to a different stage, and that's stumbling been, and tumbling, um, as we would say very, here. Yeah. Uh, that's been really interesting. Um, yes. So the passion walk has come from a variety of things. Um, some of it, some of them, certainly from my uh, work uh, and, and what I've seen through my work in the arts, 
um, I've seen a lot of site-specific theatre over mm. the years um, and, uh, and, and kind of art projects which use locations. I'll mention a couple of them later on. Um, and just realising the power of a location along with words uh, of material, if it happens in, in a location which has resonance, that it, it, it can actually somehow give you a whole new perspective, a new experience of what you're listening to or looking at. Um, so certainly there's an element of that. Um, part of my uh, spiritual journey in terms of um, doing the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola is very much to do with work walking um, with Jesus through Jesus' life and uh, using your imagination to, to th see things unfold in that life. So part of that certainly come from that experience. And uh, so uh, there was, I guess, a moment when a whole lot of things came together. When I was driving my car across Edinburgh, there's a big hill in the middle of, or very close to the middle of Edinburgh, called Arthur's Seat. This is the one um, that I stumbled my way up during the summer, is that right? You carefully didn't tell me that I was going to have to climb a hill when I came over to visit you. Uh, so I'm wearing patent leather you shoes, wore your best shoes and a tweed jacket, <laughs> and the sun was blistering, and suddenly I find myself trekking. Um, but sorry, go on. <laughs> and it was all part of the journey, wasn't it? Was it? All, it was all part of the journey, life's uh, journey. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, I felt, I, felt, I felt bad when I saw your shoes. But anyhow, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a reoccurring thing. My mum feels bad <laughs> most times she sees my shoes. <laughs> you didn't walk the Camino in your kid's no, shoes. No, I did so, wear no, walking right, shoes for that. Um, yeah, no, I was driving, driving over Arthur's seat. There's a road that kind of goes around the back, up, up a little bit of the hill and over. And, um, and just a whole lot of things that I'm thinking about kind of came together and I thought... What about um, what would it mean to look at the journey of Jesus to, to somehow have people walk the journey of Jesus on Good Friday in this city, in the landscape of this city? Um, and uh, I had done a bit of, of, of kind of reflective walking work before that, but um, a lot of things came together. Looking at Edinburgh, thinking about the power of location, thinking about ways of making people, offering an opportunity for people to experience this story, which we all know, but in a different way and in a way which relates to the place where you live. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So, so. bringing the past into the present, bringing mm -hmm. a story that transcends barriers uh, and could, happen, could have happened anywhere at any time, and how does it happen in where we find ourselves in this current moment in time? Obviously, there were a lot of different people uh, that turned up at your first Passion Walk. Joy was one of those? Not the first, the second, second, second innings, yes. okay. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hand over to Joy for a moment just to talk a little bit about your experiences of that. So you turn up in Edinburgh, you go to the church where it all was kicking off. Um, what had brought you? And tell us a little bit of your experience walking around a city that you were familiar with, um, but experiencing it in a new and different way. Well, uh, I've heard about the Passion Walk um, through the church that I was going to in, uh, on the outskirts of Edinburgh. It was an Episcopalian church. Um, it, the walk started at Greyfriars Church in, uh, in Edinburgh. And That's the I, one with the, the nice view over the, the city, isn't that right? And Greyfriars Bobby sitting yeah. outside. Yeah. <laughs> and the dog, famous for the dog. Yes. <laughs> um, so the, the walk... I had no idea what to expect, and I'm not too sure why I went along. 
But I do know that I had this desire to be preparing for Easter. And Good Friday seemed like a good day to, I had the day off, and it seemed like a good day to do that, to make some preparation for Easter. So I turned up at the church. Um, I was given an MP3 player. I was given literature or a a guide. I was given a map. Um, And I was set off on my way. And I had no idea where the walk was going to take me. Mm. But the first thing that that really struck me um, as I went out into the the graveyard round about um, Greyfriars Church was that I was listening to the opening sentences about this amazing event that took place, uh, a world-changing event, um, and such a significant time. Um, And yet the people (laughs) round about me had no idea what I was listening to because there were um, there were students in the graveyard. There were uh, tourists, as it's Edinburgh. There's always tourists. <laughs> they were laughing. They were joking. They were taking photographs. They were, you know, hanging round gravestones, <laughs> that sort of thing. And I was actually contemplating um, the last few days of of Jesus mm-hmm. before the crucifixion, and that contrast between what was going on with these tourists and what I was listening to brought the Easter story um, suddenly to light in a different way for me. Um, It it made me see it with with new eyes because it made me see it must have been like this in Jerusalem. Mm. People were going about their ordinary everyday business. They were laughing, they were joking, and many of them had no idea what was significant about that time and what was happening for, uh, for Jesus. I think that's, that's definitely true. When I did it myself during the summer, that was one of the things that struck me was how through the different monologues, through some of the readings and the sharing that's on the MP3 player, how actually people were just going about their everyday business in a hustling and, and bustling city. So you did it in Edinburgh, Susan. Tell us why Belfast. Uh, Belfast, because Joy invited me. Um, so, <laughs> Always so good to have I think, a, an inroads there. <laughs> so I think maybe you should say why you invited me. <laughs> well, um, the walk in Edinburgh finished up at a church called, um, what's it called? Mayfield Salisbury. Mayfield Salisbury Church. Um, it, it was a very fitting ending. There was there was tea. There was cake. There was there were very pe- Presbyterian. Yes, <laughs> there were there were people to talk to. Um, there was a, a beautiful reflective space in the church where you could have your own thoughts and your own uh, contemplation about what had been significant for you in the walk. And when I was talking to some of the people in the um, over the tea and the, the buns. I remember saying to them, and I remember feeling, I would love to do this next Easter, and I'm going to miss doing this next Easter, because um, I knew at that point that I was returning to Belfast after having spent eight years, or was it nine years? Eight years in, in Edinburgh, and I knew that I was going to come back to Belfast and live in Belfast, and, um, and I thought, I'm going to miss this. Mm. Uh, I would love to be able to do this again. 
and was talking to someone beside me and, and said, you know, it would be good to be able to do the, this in Belfast. I wonder, you know, is that, is that possible? And they said, well, you could talk to Susan. Mm. And I said, well, who, who's Susan and where's Susan? And Susan was sitting practically beside me. <laughs> so I turned right and started to talk to her. Um, and that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah, and it's developed and grown since then, and we're looking and very excited about Easter this year when it actually will happen on the streets of this city. Who would have thought that then from that conversation to other conversations you've had in a coffee, basically one random day in Hollywood, that we would be almost at this point. Um, so thank you to uh, Susan and Joy for sharing a little bit of your experiences. We're going to hear some more about the Passion Walk later, uh, but Susan is going to come and share a little bit with us now about art, spirituality and walking. So over to you Susan. Well thank you for coming out to listen to me Uh, and I don't know what you're expecting. I hope that this is um, at least uh, gives you something interesting to think over on a chilly Sunday evening. Uh, This is the disclaimer. It's always good to start with a disclaimer. Uh, Walking is a subject that is always straying. And um, I think I found um, in the course of thinking about tonight and preparing for tonight that it's quite difficult to say something linear and neatly tied up about the subject of walking. Um, It's as if the subject has its own meanderings And um, I I suspect that I'll meander a bit this evening through different subjects. So so that's that's the disclaimer. Also that walking is um, a very individual thing. Um, Apparently our our walk, our gait, is is as individual as our fingerprint, who would have known? Um, And that that it it was, at least at one point, considered as a a way of of, of identifying people. Uh, But of course it's rather easy a rather a lot easier to fake a walk than it is to fake a fingerprint. Um, so I think that idea didn't go very far. However, um, that's also by way of saying that um, this is going to be my take on this subject. Somebody else would address it differently. Um, but I do think that there are some rich and interesting connections between those three subjects, art, art walking, and spirituality. And um, I hope to draw out a few of those on this this journey that we'll take in the next little while. So our journey begins in the deepest, darkest northeast of Scotland in Aberdeenshire, uh, which is actually where my family um, originates, um, and in the, uh, the, the Braes of Glenlivet, which is a, um, a rather unprepossessing place, very remote. Um, and this is one Mr. Phillips writing in 1881. In these days of fast traveling, fast living, and fast everything, one finds some difficulty in extracting himself from the din and bustle. I've been to the Braes of Glenlivet. (laughs) This is actually actually the next valley along, but the landscape is very, very similar. Um, I don't know what Mr. Phillips found in, in in, in in the din and bustle. But isn't it interesting that somebody in 1881 was writing about the busyness and pace of the world and how that was increasing and sort of contemplating that maybe that's not entirely good for us. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that as the world has continued to get faster and busier and its demands on us more insidious, um, that an interest in walking as a leisure pursuit has grown and grown. And um, we want to be outside. We want to be out away from distractions. We want to have a bit of space around us. There's um, a rather wonderful book called Wanderlust, A History of Walking um, by a writer called Rebecca Solnit. And she, she's writing about nearly 15 years ago about this subject when, when obviously technology was, was not quite what it is now. Um, but she's talking about um, downtime being eroded, about the, the fact that the time which she calls in-between time where we walk perhaps to the shops or we walk to the train station might be one of the last areas of life where our attention is free to wander, where we're not, um, where we can be uncluttered, when the mind can just do its own thing. Um, and I'm very aware that, that now, um, more than 10 years on from that, we're in a different place. We all have, most of us in our pockets, a device which will connect us to our work, to our social networks, to any music we want to listen to. And the whole the sense of the mind being free to wander, um, I think, is getting kind of less and less. And maybe we don't really know yet what the implications are for us um, as a society and as individuals um, about the way that we're, we're no longer really allowing ourselves any downtime. That change is very, very significant. Um, and in terms of talking about changes and significant changes as regards walking, there is a point at which there was an, a huge sea change. Um, Rebecca Solnit talks about it as happening in the 18th century. Basically, prior to that time, almost everybody walked. They took it so much for granted that walking was a means of transport from one place to another. You just did it. Um, by that point, uh, things are changing a little bit transport-wise, not obviously the ex anything like the extent they are today, but there is an element of walking emerging as something that people choose to do. And we might now, obviously, um, even more the case, to choose walking as a mode of transport is a conscious choice. And we might think, perhaps, of parts of the United States where people barely walk at all, barely walk the length of their own driveway, and everything is motorised. So walking, it becomes a choice uh, with a bit of attitude behind it. Um, but that time, as walking became something that, that people... Would, would choose to do. People almost began to consciously think about it for the first time and there started to be writing about walking and people thinking about what it meant to walk. One of the first people to write philosophically about walking, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, this is him, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I can only meditate when I am walking. When I stop, I cease to think. My mind only works with my legs. Um, he had his own agenda, of course. Um, he had his own ideas that he was wanting to, to work with. He was very much interested in exploring the idea of man as a, in his simplest state. So he was kind of harking back in a way to an earlier age uh, and, and walking himself in order to, to do that. This is Rebecca Solnit. This is from Wanderlust. Um, I suspect that the mind, like the feet, works at about three miles an hour. If this is so, then modern life is moving faster than the speed of thought or thoughtfulness. Um, and I think we've touched on that. And that the quote that Jonathan read at the beginning, um, written during when he was on the Camino, about um, 
the rhythm of walking leading to a rhythm of thought and, and the passage through a landscape leading to a passage of thought is, is a very relevant one. We all walk, I think, sometimes to clear our heads. This is a lady called Claudia Zeiska who runs um, a place, I think, called the Walking Institute in a town actually not very far from the breeze of Glenlivet that I showed you earlier. And she's just saying, I think a lot of people would empathise with this, if I have a problem, I just walk. And the longer I walk, the better I feel, and then the ideas kick in. Um, And I think a lot of creative people probably uh, find themselves walking to stimulate ideas. It has that connection with um, walking and thinking, that rhythm, that process of moving through uh, that that seems seems to work. And... Finally, John Muir, the the great conservationist uh, born in Scotland, went on to be a founding figure in the National Parks Movement in the United States. Um, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown for going out, I found, was really going in. Um, And so that idea of uh, a journey out being a journey inward, um, a journey towards towards some kind of self-discovery, And one of the things that I've noticed again and again about thinking about walking is that there's a connection between um, that that is made somehow between tangible things and intangible things. If if we think about pilgrimage, if we think about the process of of pilgrimage, pilgrims are walking in search of something intangible, whether it's redemption, um, healing, um, enlightenment, insight... But they're walking, they're, they're doing that through a very, very physical process. And um, that's something that I, I notice again and again, the coming together of, of things, um, the, the, the physical and the, and the imagination, the physical and the creative, um, the, the tangible and the intangible. That may be a reason why a lot of poets walk. The romantic poets in particular always seem to be walking. Um, how else did Wordsworth find those wretched daffodils? Um, <laughs> But really, all the romantics, Coleridge and Keats, and uh, and and people like John Clare, um, massive walking journeys that they undertook, and that idea of the journey into a landscape being also a journey into the self, and um, the expression of what you see outwardly somehow expressing the inner state. There's lots of that in romantic poetry and in uh, the art of the period as well. Uh, this is one of the great icons of of that period, one of the great iconic images, Caspar David Friedrich, the wanderer above the sea of mists. Um, and that's uh, capturing really that moment of, of, of being out. Um, and he must have walked there. How else could he have got there? Being out in that landscape and that, that expressing um, something of the wildness of, of nature and, and something about the human spirit. And I really get the impression of Europe in that period as being um, full of... Uh, young aristocrats looking for wilderness spaces where they could be dramatically alone. And then we have the development of the city walker, the flaneur. Um, He made his first appearance in uh, Baudelaire in the 19th century, and we associate him with people like Baudelaire, Walter Benjamin, and almost invariably men, almost invariably bourgeois, uh, almost invariably in Paris. That seemed to be the place to be a, a flaneur. Um, and, but it's an idea, that, that idea of the, you know, you can see in this, in the, in this slightly caricaturish illustration of the, the sort of well-dressed, thoughtful young man observing the life of the city. 
um, and uh, and it's a, a sort of a sort of tradition, a sort of idea that has come down through through, through the situationists in, in the 20th century, and still you find it quite widely in art and in writing today. So by the middle of the 20th century, another thing was happening was, of course, the sea change in art. And this kind of was really getting bedded in, in in the sort of 50s and 60s, the transition of art being from the, the sort of painting that we saw a couple of minutes ago with Friedrich to fr- from the making of an object or the making of a painting to move towards being a kind of investigation of ideas and being an ideas-based approach, being essentially conceptual art, which is the predominant movement that we have in the art world today. And one of the movements within that, one of the sort of most monumental, as it were, was uh, something called land art. This is uh, Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty uh, on Great Salt Lake in Utah. But there were a variety of, of these things which were made. Artists were essentially thinking about creating a path in the landscape, creating an artwork which was big enough that people would walk in it, that it would be a, a three-dimensional experience. This is essentially a rock path which, um, which you can follow down and around this spiral jetty. And it's that idea that, that an, an artwork can be something rather different from what you thought. It's not, it's not necessarily an object you can place in a museum. It can be something much bigger. It can also be something less tangible. So around a similar time um, to this, actually a little bit before Smithson, but there were other land art projects going on before Spiral Jetty, um, a young British artist called, jo- called Richard Long made a work called A Line Made by Walking. Um, and essentially what he did was he, um, whichever, way, whichever way you read the story, he took the train or he hitchhiked, he got to a field just outside London and he walked up and down between two points, two fixed points, until he had made a path on the gra- through the grass. There was a path worn, there was a line that he had drawn. And it was a kind of land art, uh, but it was so far from that huge ambition that we've seen with Robert Smithson and the, the land artists in the United States. Um, it was Some people have described it as very English. It was a very modest gesture, uh, quite unobtrusive. Um, but it was also, in art terms, very, very important. It was a kind of a beginning of a new way of making art about walking. So you no longer have a painting depicting the individual in the landscape, as you had with Friedrich, um, that, that sort of ambition and drama and emotion. Um, you have something much more modest. You have a photograph of a path that someone has walked between two fixed points. And, and I think if you asked Richard Long, he would say, the photograph is not the art. The walk is the art. So Richard Long has gone on. That was 1967. He's gone on to have a, a long and, and successful career um, as an artist, making a range of types of work most of them based around walking. One of the things that he he does is that he will create some form of a sculpture in the landscape. He usually uses what's there, but he would move stones or sticks into a particular shape and photograph it. Um, He also takes those things sometimes into museums and builds and arranges things, sculptural pieces within museums, and also writes text uh, pieces which are um, reflections of his his walks in some way, uh, sometimes quite poetic. He has said, a walk expresses space and freedom, and the knowledge of it can live in the imagination of everyone, 
and that is another space. So the idea of, of a walk to a work of art, to your imagination, again, there's a sort of connection between the material and the immaterial, the tangible and the intangible. A couple of years after Richard Long made his line made by walking, um, a contemporary of his, a man who'd been a fellow student of his at Central St. Martin's, was um, in Montana in the States and reading about Native American philosophy and the connection between people and landscape. And he committed himself, his name was Hamish Fulton, and he committed himself to uh, making art only about individual walks that he had taken. Uh, so like Richard Long, he makes text works. Uh, this one, I don't know if you can read the small print, No Talking for Seven Days, Walking for Seven Days in a Wood, Cairngorms, Scotland, February, full moon, 1988. His text works are often very, very specific. Um, they have the dates, the, the length walked, or the length in days that he walked. These works are quite similar in some ways to Richard Long's works, but he doesn't create sculptures within the landscape. His philosophy is absolutely about leaving no trace, not taking anything away, and not make, doing anything to change the landscape that you're in. And uh, he, again, would say, the walk is the art. He talks about walking as something that creates a receptiveness to landscape and that, and that being in a landscape is about being and not doing. And as somebody who's tried to learn a bit about the contemplative tradition, um, that's something that one keeps coming back to. Is it possible to be rather than to do? We're all under pressure to do all the time. Um, and so his, his work touches again, interestingly, on, that, on some of those things. Though it's also in some ways at, at odds with the art market. He has said, um, an artwork may be purchased, but a walk cannot be sold. I sell art to pay for the next walk. But Fulton is interested in all kinds of walking, and um, I was part of a project that he did in 2010 in Huntley, in, in, in the uh, organised, in fact, by Claudia Zeisker, who I quoted earlier on. And sorry, that's one more Fulton. This, this is Fulton making a point in very large letters. This is not land art because you're not, you're not changing the landscape. You're, not, um, you're, you're taking nothing away. You're doing nothing to it. It's about your experience and the walk. But this is Huntley in 2010, and this is what he calls a choreographed walk. So he had about 30 of us walking in single file, two metres apart, uh, no talking allowed, and we were to walk round a block he'd designated, he'd chosen a block in the town. Uh, we were to walk round that block, four sides, four little streets, continuously for two hours. And it wasn't a particularly interesting block. I mean, you can see a little bit of it there. And this is, um, this is another project that he did of a similar nature in, at a, around a, an open-air swimming pool in Margate in a project he was doing there. So two hours, single file, two metres apart, and that's, that's what you do. And um, this is what I wrote after that experience, um, so I just thought I might read a couple of paragraphs to, of this to you. The focus of my attention for the next two hours are the heels of Alan Watson, head of fine art at Gray's School of Art in Aberdeen. He's taller than me, and there are moments when I have to jog to keep the two metres distance between us. Passers-by stop to stare or snigger at this Ken Speckle procession. By the fifth circuit, my calf muscles are screaming. But by the tenth, something strange has happened. 
My legs don't hurt anymore. My mind has relaxed. Time feels as if it's liquefying. Has it been 10 laps or 50? It doesn't matter. I have no demands on my time. Nothing is required of me but simply to walk. And so it turned out that what that walk did was bring us into a kind of meditative space. And it made me think a bit about meditative walking and how that is part of a number of uh, the Eastern faith traditions. Hamish Fulton wouldn't necessarily talk about it in spiritual terms. I think he's quite careful not to. Uh, But he did say later on that day to me, it is a vehicle for a change of mind a shift in where the mind's located. I think our minds go round and round and round in the same furrows. And possibly when you do a walk like this, you go to another part of your mind. It sets in motion a variety of perceptions. And, and so I think there's something there about the, the, the permeability um, of, of the, 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 the tangible and intangible, the, the, the change, the shift in thinking that it can bring you into. Uh, I think he uh, became interested in doing these kind of choreographed walks because he had met these guys. Um, these, these are the monks um, of Mount Haie, north of Kyoto in Japan. Uh, they, they're known as the Marathon Monks. Um, they are part of the Tendai school of Buddhism. And pursuit of enlightenment for them means to walk or to run around their sacred mountain for many days. Uh, and they're running vast amounts per day. Um, the ultimate expression of, of this, of their quest for enlightenment, is a regime of a thousand days over seven years, where they run a total of about 27,000 miles. Um, by the end of it, they're running 52 miles per day for 100 days. And they're running in these, uh, in, in home, homemade, uh, handmade uh, straw uh, sandals. Um, and, and are reckoned to be some of the finest athletes in the world. Uh, not many of them complete, complete that highest level. It's very, very rare and incredibly punishing. Um, but I think that pursuit interested Hamish Fulton, um, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It does happen in, in lots of ways that are not as extreme as that in different disciplines in, 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 in the Eastern faiths. And it's... It's a sort of acknowledgement of the fact that movement um, is a way of focusing the mind, of clearing the distractions, of aligning the body and the mind. And that, that thing that, I, that we read earlier about the mind working at about three miles an hour, somehow the mind and the body come into pace with one another. And that it's that, it's shutting out the distractions, but it's not a kind of shutting down. It's also about galvanizing the mind as well, and, and the, all that people said about how walking and thinking and ideas and imagining can be stimulated by movement. And I think it's interesting to me, in light of reading about all of that, to, to think about a couple of, of the things, references to walking in the Bible. Um, obviously, people in Bible times walked everywhere, that's what you did. But when you read a passage like, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And I think just noticing that walking is mentioned in terms of a process of thought and in terms of fixing things that are important in your mind, 
Um, thinking as well about that, that, what is probably the most famous walking story in the Bible, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I think of that story as being um, there. They've been in, in Jerusalem. It's a bit of a hothouse environment. Jesus has been crucified. They um, have heard rumors that he's uh, been ro- raised, raised from the dead. Nobody's really sure what's happening. They're walking to Emmaus. They get a bit of headspace and they begin to talk about it. Uh, and this person joins them on the road and they talk to him about it and they pour out their feelings and he begins to explain things to them. And it's only much later when they sit down to a meal together that he breaks the bread and they realize it's Jesus. Uh, so it just seems entirely consistent to me that that's the kind of conversation you would have while you were walking. Uh, that just happens. And so uh, I suppose those things are about the boundaries between uh, physical, intellectual, spiritual, becoming slightly more permeable in, in walking. Rebecca Solnit, when she's writing about artists who make art about walking, uh, says, says that they often have, she calls it, unacknowledged religious dimensions um, in their structure. Um, and it's, it's interesting just to scan through, which I'll do very quickly, um, some uh, one or two pieces of art about walking and just to see perhaps some of those things. This is Francis Alice, who's a Belgian artist uh, based in Mexico City, who um, is pushing a block of ice around the centre of Mexico City until it melts. Um, now, that's, it, it's kind of got this that sort of monumentalness about that gesture uh, and also kind of a a monumental pointlessness about it. Um, It's such an effort that it should have meaning, but it kind of points to to, to the fact that it doesn't. Uh, And I think possibly for him points to a certain amount of frustration um, in terms of what he sees in Mexico City, um, in terms of people uh, trying to improve things and those improvements not happening. Uh, Marina Abramovich, um, who this is a project she did in, in um, the 1980s with her then partner, and they they set out at opposite ends of the Great Wall of China. The, their idea was that they would start at opposite ends, they would walk, I think it's 4,000 kilometres distance to meet each other, and in the middle they would meet and they would marry. Um, the story didn't work out quite like that. By the time they spent about six years wrestling with red tape in China in the 1980s, you can imagine, that would be quite a thing. Um, and by the time they actually did this, their relationship had changed. So in fact, it was the last work they made together. But again, it's that, that the sense of an extreme uh, journey with a goal in mind, um, it's, almost, you know, it's almost a kind of secular pilgrimage, it has a lot of the formal similarities to that. This is a a Guatemalan artist called Regina José Galindo, and this is a work she made in response to the news that the former dictator, General Montt, had been allowed to stand as a presidential candidate in Guatemala. And she made this, it's called Who Can Erase the Traces? She walked barefoot from the constitutional court, the body who ratified the decision, to the National Palace with a basin of blood, and she, which she would periodically step in, and she left a trail of bloody footprints between those two buildings. So that sense, I think, there's a lot here about protest, and also the kind of penance of saying, this regime has not been sufficiently penitent. People have died, you have not acknowledged it. I will take it upon myself to demonstrate 
what you should do and to demonstrate that there's, there's blood on your hands. And the final one I'm just briefly going to mention is um, an Irish artist called Willie Doherty, who I'm sure people here will be aware of. He grew up in Derry, teaches at the University of Ulster. The work that I, I particularly w- wanted to mention was a work called Ghost Story, which I saw in Venice in 2007, uh, where he was representing uh, Northern Ireland at the Venice Biennale. Um, it's a very foreboding work. It gets under your skin. Um, it is essentially a film where the camera is panning along a path at walking pace and the voiceover is Stephen Rea talking about the past, talking about um, how the past stays around, what happens to the pain that people witness, what happens to the violence, can it be uh, brushed under the surface. I think a lot of Doherty's work is informed by growing up in Derry and studying in Belfast during the Troubles and indeed witnessing uh, Bloody Sunday when he was a teenager. Um, so it, it's, he's not, he doesn't spell it out in the, in the film. It's a very powerful film. I think there are allusions in it to lots of things, including the Iraq War. Um, but it's, for me, incredibly powerful in the way that it combines location, um, words and ideas at a walking pace. The whole thing evolves at the speed of walk, which is that, the mind at three miles an hour thing. It's a a very, very um, effective piece of work. I think that seeing that work was probably part of what got me thinking about the power of location and uh, and visuals. Um, And another thing which certainly put me onto thinking about the Passion Walk was a show called En Route, this, uh, this is a, a show which happened during the uh, Edinburgh Festival Fringe in 2010, uh, d- d- delivered by an Australian company from Melbourne. Um, and it really, it, it, was, it sits, I think, somewhere between um, visual art and, and theatre. You go on a journey in a city with an audio guide MP3 player. Uh, you take, they take you on, on routes around your city that you've never been on before. I thought I'd been on every alleyway in the centre of Edinburgh. Um, it took me places that I'd never been. Um, it took us to the top floor of a multi-storey car park where we looked over the city. Um, you're doing it individually, what, you know, so you're essentially alone. You would receive instructions by text message. Uh, at one point, you go into a record shop and rifle through the records, and that you find a package with your name on it, which tells you the next thing to do. It's it's a bit of a magical mystery tour. It's a journey of discovery, um, but also just a combination of listening and uh, and looking at the landscape and and looking at looking at the city really in another way. And I think that. Um, coming after I'd already seen a lot of site-specific theatre in Edinburgh, but um, really realising the power of, of walking through a landscape and, and, and letting that landscape become part of what you're experiencing, letting the ongoing life of the city become part of that. At times you were never sure if um, you were, you, the person that you saw, the people that you saw were part of that show or not. Maybe they were just there, uh, particularly during the fringe. Um, you can get all sorts in town, but that mingling of what's going on in the landscape and, and, and what's going on in the experience that you're having, how um, powerful that can be. So I think all those things fed into um, thinking about uh, developing a walk where one could walk the uh, route of the passion in the city of Edinburgh and knowing as well, as Jonathan said earlier, that 
the events of Easter took place in a city uh, which was busy, which was um, full of its own tensions, um, which um, had all sorts of things going on, of which this was only one of them, and people were just going their own way and and ignoring it. Um, And that uh, W.H. Auden puts it so well about, in his poem, Musée de Beaux-Arts, about suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating, or opening a window, or just walking dully along. So these things all uh, started to prompt questions to me uh, about what would it mean to uh, walk with Jesus on his journey to the cross um, in our own city, and I think eventually thinking too, could that then be adapted for another city? And it's been my pleasure and privilege to be walking around Belfast in the last year, um, looking at ways that this journey could uh, be uh, laid onto the fabric of this um, city as well. I think the fundamental thing um, in it is this, that, that we do have as, as Christians, the belief that God is with us. To, in some way, God is with us in our world. Uh, when we say Emmanuel at Christmas, God with us. And how do we make that real? And how do we begin to walk alongside him? Um, and how then might that impact us if we realize the points where that journey touches our journey? Um, and so that's, that's the hope uh, the hope that um, we will be walking in um, in Belfast at Easter, and uh, we have uh, we have uh, some leaflets and things which we can we can give you about the walk, and there's lots more information to come. This is a quote from one of my walkers in Edinburgh. It hallowed my city. I felt that I was following in the footsteps of Jesus, who had come to Edinburgh, and I leave, just leave that as a kind of little imaginative thought. Uh, What about Jesus walking in Belfast? Thank you so much for listening.